0: Depression comes to all of us at times. I know personally, I suffer from depression myself and have most of my life. But if you can't seem to get out of it and you're using illegal drugs, alcohol, or other bad influences to try and escape the pain, you're not alone. Please stop and do me a favor. Call 800-831-1560. They'll show you a way out of the darkness. That's 800-831-1560. 800-831-1560 Well, it's the new year and that means New Year's resolutions, right? So what's your New Year's resolution? To lose weight? To exercise more? Maybe to give up a habit? Well, doing any of those things is going to be a lot easier if you have a good night's sleep first. Now is the perfect time if you've not already tried a MyPillow Because right now you can get two
1: premium and two go-anywhere pillows for one low price with... Here's an honest question. How are you supposed to know what to do with your money? Very few of us are exposed to meaningful advice on how to manage our finances. Even fewer have the means to get professional financial guidance. Betterment is a platform that was built to do something radical, to give accessible financial advice that puts you first. If you're like most Americans, your money is probably sitting in a savings account, likely earning you next to nothing. Maybe you have an investment account that you're not really sure what to do with. Betterment can help you make sense of what to do with your money. Investing involves risk, but you don't have to know the ins and the outs of the stock market to start investing for your future. Betterment's technology will put your money to work, choosing the stocks and strategies that are right for you, because we know you have other things to do. Betterment's platform can even provide guidance on what financial goals make sense for you. Give your money a new home with Betterment. Peace of mind included. Download the Betterment app today. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-M-E-N-T, for the betterment of you. Free shipping. Now, if you've been a weirdo
0: for any length of time, you know I do not promote anything here unless I believe in it myself. I'm already using a MyPillow, I've got one of their seat cushions, which helped me immensely with some back issues I was having uh, in the office, and I also have one of their Go Anywhere Pillows, which also helps out with the back problems, and I use it in the family room on my recliner, just lounging around and now in the mail, on its way, is a mattress topper for me. I I just want to try it! ***But now is the perfect time to try MyPillow. Get two premium MyPillows and two go-anywhere pillows for one low price with free shipping. All you have to do is visit MyPillow.com and then use the promo code WEIRD. Click on the four-pack special when you're there mypillow.com, click on the four-pack special, and then use the promo code WEIRD, or you can call 800-945-7192. That's 800-945-7192. Ask for the four-pack special and use the promo code WEIRD for free shipping. Welcome to the Weekend Archives of Weird Darkness. This episode was originally broadcast March 8, 2018. Stories and content in weird darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. The Voynich Manuscript The Beal Papers Kryptos Dorabella The world's best codebreakers have been unable to unlock the mysterious ciphers that only the authors seem to comprehend. What do their cryptic messages say? What were they trying to tell us? Were the codes ever meant to be broken? Or are they so complex that it would be nearly impossible to do so? Perhaps the most notable case is that of the Zodiac Killer, who gripped the San Francisco Bay Area with fear taunting police and sending handwritten cryptographs to the press, challenging them to publish the codes in order to avert further killings in the late 1960s. Not all of the killer's codes were ultimately unbreakable, however. In late 2017, the Zodiac's so-called Z-340 cipher is believed to have been cracked after nearly 50 years of head-scratching. The Z-340 cipher, according to the Zodiac, would reveal his true identity. But it turns out the joke was on us after 48 years of painstaking cryptography. The Zodiac must have meant for his codes to eventually be solved because the name he revealed in the cipher was Richard M. Nixon, who was president at the time the code was penned. More recently, however, another case involving handwritten ciphers has baffled investigators. Tonight on Weird Darkness, we explore the unsolved mystery of Ricky McCormick and the mysterious pages of code found in the dead man's pocket after his body was discovered in St. Charles County, Missouri in 1999. The FBI's top cryptanalysts have appealed to the public for help deciphering the enigmatic scribbles, and you may hold the key. I'm Darren Marlar and this is is weird darkness. Welcome weirdos. This is weird darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved and unexplained. If you have a dark tale to tell, You can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And be sure to subscribe if you haven't already done so so you don't miss future episodes. Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the Weird Darkness. body was spotted in a cornfield by a passing motorist on June 30, 1999, in West Alton, Missouri. The decedent, Ricky McCormick, was a 41-year-old, mostly unemployed high school dropout on disability welfare, a father of four, and had a criminal record. His body was found 15 miles from where he lived and far from anywhere public transportation may have taken him. A loner since childhood, Ricky had a vivid imagination, and though he had no siblings, his cousin Charles was like a brother to him. Charles would describe his cousin as living in an imaginary fantasy world, perhaps suggesting an undiagnosed mental illness. Having fathered two children with an underage girl his longtime girlfriend, McCormick was charged with statutory rape in 1993. Despite his public defender's assertion that McCormick was suffering from a mental illness or other deficit and having undergone a psychological evaluation, the court deemed McCormick fit to stand trial. He pleaded guilty and was sentenced to three years in jail. After serving about a year in the Farmington Correctional Center, McCormick was conditionally released by the Missouri Department of Corrections. Though he relied on disability checks received for his heart problem, Ricky McCormick would often take odd jobs, usually preferring overnights, prompting his Aunt Gloria to refer to him as a vampire. And though friends and family say he personally steered clear of taking drugs and alcohol, he's believed to have been involved with local dealers, for whom he may have been a drug runner. Because of his brushes with the law, Authorities were inclined to suspect foul play when his badly decomposed body was found. The cornfield along Route 367 had been a dumping ground for murder victims in the past, so police initially approached the death as suspicious. McCormick had been treated at Forest Park Hospital in St. Louis for an asthma flare-up on June 25th and claimed to be released the following day. He was reportedly seen alive for the last time at a gas station on the 27th. Just three days later, the 72 pounds left of a 5 foot 6 inch man's remains would be discovered in the cornfield. Because he'd been receiving treatment for heart and lung problems, authorities didn't rule out the possibility that he may have died of natural causes, especially considering that it seemed no one would have had any reason to kill the father of four. Still, it was reported that McCormick appeared to have suffered a head injury. But because of the advanced decomposition in the summer heat, fingerprinting was required to identify his remains. Even by this point, the flesh of his hands had fallen away from the bone. Because of the advanced decay, the medical examiner was hard-pressed to determine the nature of the head injury. As a result, McCormick's cause of death was stated as undetermined, Could he simply have fallen and hit his head? Perhaps during a medical episode? But if so, what the heck was he doing way out there? Lacking any motive for murder, the case was swept under the rug in short order, and McCormick, like so many other poor black men whose deaths remain unsolved, was virtually forgotten by law enforcement. It wasn't until 12 years later that this would change. On March 29, 2011, it became apparent that the FBI had now taken an interest in the cold case when the Bureau's cryptanalysis and Racketeering Records Unit, or CRRU, released new details. In addition to reporting that Ricky had been shot to death, the FBI released two handwritten pages that had been recovered from a pocket in the jeans McCormick had been wearing when his body was discovered an element that local authorities had for some reason never made public. Not even McCormick's family had been approached about the notes found in his pocket, and they had been completely unaware of this detail until the FBI had already gone public. In fact, Ricky's mother, Frankie Sparks, alleged that police specifically told her the only thing found in his pockets was a ticket from the Forest Park emergency room. The two now-released pages are a jumble of letters, numbers, and parentheses that the CRRU's best agents simply couldn't make any sense of, but they knew the encrypted writing might hold clues about the circumstances leading up to McCormick's death. Dan Olson, then chief of the CRRU, initiated the release of the two ciphers, indicating they were believed to have been penned by McCormick himself. Olson's hope was that amateur sleuths might be able to crack whatever code McCormick was using in the mysterious writings. Olson also believes McCormick wrote the notes within three days of his untimely death. But wait a second, a man with such a low IQ is believed to have created a cipher so complex that the FBI's most talented decoders couldn't make any sense of it? In 2009, the CRRU even reached out to members of the American Cryptogram Association who were just as stumped. We're talking about folks who can typically glean at least some meaning from any code within hours. The 31 mysterious lines found in McCormick's pocket, however, remain among the CRRU's top three unsolved cases. The FBI created a webpage specifically dedicated to receiving suggestions about the strange writings, which yielded an overwhelming number of tips. So many, in fact, that they ultimately asked the public to stop posting to the page. Some of the more than 7,000 online tipsters pointed to everything from records of drug trafficking and gambling to VIN numbers of stolen cars, but the case remains unsolved cryptographers take a methodical approach when attempting to reveal meanings hidden in coded material. The first of four steps is to identify which language the code is written in. In McCormick's case, given his limited education, it's a safe bet the language would have to be English, and that's what the FBI has been going on. The next step is to determine what sort of system has been implemented in the code. Are there repeating patterns that could indicate commonly used words? For instance, a coder may choose to use letter substitution, which could be as simple as altering the alphabet by one letter, where an A would appear as a B and S as T and so on. The CRRU has not been able to move beyond this step, though they are certain the code cannot be dismissed as gibberish. If they could move beyond the second step, cryptographers would then try to reconstruct the key and thereby decode the text. But in the McCormick case, these standard procedures have yielded nothing useful. That's why the FBI has been appealing to the public for aid in the case. They're hoping someone can either crack the code or that maybe someone has seen a similar type of code before, which suggests the CRRU may believe it is something McCormick may have picked up while in prison or that it could be a code used by drug dealers, in which case McCormick may only have been serving as a courier of the cipher. Still, authorities remain confident the notes were, in fact, written by Ricky. But could the FBI be way off track in presuming the cipher to be so intricate? Given what we know about Ricky McCormick, it seems far more likely that it is a language he alone may have understood. If so, it's no wonder sophisticated computers couldn't break the scribblings down. McCormick's own mother, Frankie, claimed he could barely even write his own name, and even going as far as to describe him as being retarded. And others in his family claimed Ricky couldn't spell anything, only scribble. Some family members suspected he may have suffered from mental illness. But if we first consider that he was functionally illiterate, and perhaps even had a learning disability like dyslexia, we may be able to apply a new understanding to the enigmatic codes Ricky McCormick left behind. Indeed, the characters he scribbled onto the two sheets of paper must have been some form of English, and while he could certainly speak English, writing it was most definitely a problem for him could the ciphers actually be some sort of phonetic, albeit dyslexic, form of English? I'd put money on it. So let's look at the last two places we know McCormick was seen alive. First, Forest Park Hospital, where he visited the emergency room while experiencing breathing difficulty. Could the string 4SPRK refer to Forest Park? Could at least some of the scribblings found in his pocket have been notes he took while speaking with medical personnel. For instance, do the letters N-R-S-E refer to a nurse? Were some of the lines pre-written questions he wanted to ask the doctors, perhaps about proper dosages? One such line is followed by 3XORL in parentheses. Was McCormick instructed to take a medication three times a day by mouth? And what if Ricky did, have a mental illness, as suspected by family members, but didn't want anyone to know he was being treated for it. In keeping medication reminders for himself, Ricky's brand of shorthand could certainly prevent his secret from getting out. The last line of the second page of notes found in his pockets ends with DWMY. Could this serve as a key referring to day, week, month, and year? It's difficult to say. Maybe the Y is actually a number four, which might make sense because it's followed by mil and xorlx. Four milligrams by mouth? The deeper you look into it, the more anything starts to make sense, and the whole process of trying to unearth the true meaning of the notes becomes maddening. Because this second page is circled off into five sections Perhaps each part is unrelated to the others. According to some reports, he was last spotted alive on June 27th at the gas station he was known to have worked at from time to time. Could the parenthetical section beginning with MUN5ARS refer to Monday, five hours? It's followed by the letters TEN, then MUNARS again and ending with the letter E. In fact, an inordinate number of lines end with the letter E. Could E serve as a period or end, where no other form of punctuation exists to complete a thought? Nearly every line of the two handwritten pages ends with an E. If the gas station, where Ricky was known to have worked sometimes is really the last place he was seen alive, Could someone at that gas station have had a reason to kill him? If so, that's where a man named Baha Hamdallah may have been a factor. Hamdallah, a Palestinian immigrant who ran the gas station with his brother Juma, seems to have a bit of a checkered past. Nearly two months after McCormick's death, police from nearby Maryland Heights investigated a shooting incident in which Baha was allegedly shot by his brother. He survived but refused to file charges against Juma. But during the investigation, authorities discovered alleged ties Baha had to St. Louis gang members involved in narcotics. Their report went on to describe Baha as violent and noting that he possessed guns. Two years earlier, a detective allegedly witnessed Baha fire a shot at a man from his vehicle. Luckily, the intended victim wasn't harmed. Baha was arrested following the shooting but was never prosecuted. Less than a year later, Baha reportedly got into an argument with another one of his brothers, whom he subsequently shot before fleeing the scene, according to witness reports. Despite what these witnesses told police, the injured brother claimed the assailant was a goateed Hispanic male. Did he try to throw police off his brother's trail out of fear? Regardless, Baha turned himself in several days later, but his brother refused to file charges against him. Later that month, Baha was arrested again, this time at his family's gas station for allegedly beating a loiterer with a rusty hammer. Two weeks before Baha was to stand trial for the alleged assault, the alleged victim was shot to death just blocks from the gas station, and charges against Hamdallah were dropped. According to records obtained through a FOIA request, informants told police the man had been killed at the behest of Baha Hamdala. Now, fast forward to June 15, 1999, about two weeks before Ricky McCormick was murdered. Ricky bought a one-way bus ticket to Orlando, Florida in the early morning hours. It wasn't the first trip he'd made to Florida that year, but it would be his last. In the weeks prior to his departure, a number of calls had been placed from McCormick's home to the Orlando area. After arriving in Orlando, he's known to have stayed at an Econo Lodge for two days, from where he and girlfriend Sandra Jones, back home, had frequently talked by phone. It's also reported that Ricky had placed at least one phone call to the gas station where he worked with Hamdala. After Ricky's murder, his girlfriend told police she suspected his trips to Orlando were to bring quantities of marijuana back to St. Louis. She said Ricky was known to take jobs carrying and delivering packages. In other words, it's believed Ricky was running drugs from Orlando to St. Louis for someone. According to her police report, Ricky had been holding the drugs for none other than Baha Hamdala. If he had been acting as a courier of sorts, is it possible Ricky isn't the one who wrote the encrypted notes and that he was simply supposed to deliver them? The FBI doesn't think so. When Ricky returned from his last trip to Orlando, he seemed truly frightened, his girlfriend told police. So what happened? Did Ricky have a close call with law enforcement and have to ditch the stash, only to return home empty-handed and fearing Handala's wrath? Once returning to St. Louis, McCormick sought medical treatment at a variety of hospitals in the area. Was this an attempt to become hospitalized and thereby be safely out of Hamdala's reach? Could the second page of more hastily written notes contain directions for getting out of town or even out of the country? One amateur sleuth has proposed on the internet that page two, which has several lines starting with numbers, may indicate that Ricky had planned to escape to Canada through the northern tip of Michigan. That point would be approximately 690 miles from St. Louis. If the numbers beginning those three lines refer to the miles, they added up to just over 700. Or, what if these suggested mile points lead to where the drugs were located? The line following these other sentences beginning with numbers starts with 99.84.5. Could this be a lock combination? If so, standard combination locks only go as high as 49, but a combination safe would go to 99. Just a thought. On June 22nd, after having returned from Orlando and complaining of chest pains and difficulty breathing, Ricky was admitted to the Barnes Jewish Hospital for two days. After being released on the 24th, McCormick took a bus to visit his Aunt Gloria, where he had always felt safe. Perhaps feeling a little better after speaking with her for about an hour, he left. The next day, Ricky visited the Forest Park ER, where he complained of breathing problems after lawn mowing. Less than an hour later, hospital staff determined He would not be admitted for the asthma flare-up. But both his aunt and girlfriend believe he spent the night in the waiting room anyway because Ricky called his girlfriend the following morning to say that he was out of the hospital and was now on his way to the gas station, the same gas station where an employee would last see him alive the following day on the 27th. The medical examiner is certain McCormick died only hours later, at most. His Aunt Gloria stated that Ricky may have felt his life was in danger and had therefore refused to stay with her or return home in order to avoid putting the lives of loved ones in peril, the final selfless act of a man who never wanted to see anyone get hurt. He was laid to rest in Laurel Hill Memorial Gardens without so much as a headstone to let anyone know he was buried there. But about six months later, the St. Charles County Sheriff's Department met with homicide and narcotics officers from the St. Louis PD, along with housing and urban development investigators, and an FBI agent. Apparently, St. Louis PD Sergeant Ed Cooner had new information he wanted to share about the case with fellow law enforcement. It turns out the police department had been investigating an alleged drug dealer named Gregory Lamar Knox, a suspect in multiple homicides, whom they believed had also engaged in murder-for-hire contracts. Additionally, a police informant stated Knox had murdered Ricky McCormick. The police department was also inclined to believe Knox may have been associated with the Hamdallas. In the weeks following his meeting of law enforcement minds, St. Charles County detectives began staking out the gas station, as well as homes of the Hamdallas but no link to Knox would be made as a result. Both Knox and Baha Hamdala would later serve time, however, on unrelated charges – Knox for drug trafficking and Hamdallah for murder. In 2002, Hamdallah was sentenced to 38 years in prison for shooting a man in the face. But only six years later, he walked after an appellate court ruled that his attorney had failed him by not calling a gunpowder residue expert to the stand in order to testify in support of Hamdala's claims of self-defense. But let's get back to the pages found in Ricky McCormick's pocket. While the previously discussed second page appears to have been written in a somewhat hasty manner, as if they were notes jotted to himself, the first page is much more orderly, even seeming almost formal. Does this indicate it was something he took a good deal more time and thought to prepare? If indeed Ricky had been carrying drugs from Orlando to St. Louis for a dealer, it's within reason to suspect he may also have been distributing smaller amounts to buyers for the dealer. Could this page be records he kept of various transactions? Among those who subscribe to the drug trafficking theory, NCBE, a string of letters found frequently on the pages, is believed to mean something like, no cash being exchanged. But if we stick to the theory that E serves as a period, we're left with NCB. No callback? Or, given the very real possibility of dyslexia being in the mix, could NCB serve as a reminder to be nice? Or could NCB, preceded several times by two-digit numbers, refer to apartments in the Clinton Peabody Housing Project where Gregory Lamar Knox had allegedly dealt drugs and was suspected of at least one murder. It's also where Ricky had lived with his girlfriend. When Darren Marlar reached out to me to write a piece about the Ricky McCormick case, I jumped at the opportunity, as I always do when it comes to being a Weird Darkness contributor. I'll admit I wasn't familiar with the case before the assignment, but it's something that has come to consume not only me but my wife. My wife, who grew up in Europe, was very active in creating and using codes with friends as a child. Later, in the medical profession, she's also worked a great deal with the mentally ill and persons with other disabilities, including those who had difficulty communicating. So when I briefed her about the unsolved murder of Ricky McCormick, she became quite interested when I got to the part about uncrackable codes having been found in his pocket she asked me to print them out for her and disappeared from my attic office to get to work on them. By the time I called it quits for the day, an hour or two later and joined her downstairs, she was well on her way to piecing together yet another possible scenario. And it's one that really underscores the tragedy that was the life and death of Ricky McCormick. While we believe some of the clues regarding this potential scenario are directly revealed in the lines of the text, other parts have evolved from reading between the lines. Having not even been briefed about the Hamdala and Knox angles, my wife had determined that Ricky McCormick had lost, or more likely had hidden, drugs belonging to someone else. But instead of marijuana, she believed the notes referred to a drug known as glass, which is slang for meth the letters GLS are referenced on both pages of the cryptic writings. The more orderly and formal of the two pages appears to be addressed to someone, perhaps even to two people. At the very least, they seem to be notes he could refer to during a very important meeting in order to properly articulate himself. In one particular sentence, the string of letters L S E U R G L S stands out like a sore thumb. Could this portion of a sentence be the words LOSE YOUR GLASS? The letters MRSE appear multiple times in the letter. Could this indicate Ricky was begging for mercy? The next-to-last line of the letter contains what appears to be two words next to one another that read L-U-S-E-T-O-T-E. Is this proof that Ricky was trying to explain the circumstances that led to him having to ditch the bag of stash or lose the tote. My wife feels Ricky was trying to explain that he didn't lose the drugs but that he merely had to leave them somewhere for safekeeping. And I think she may be onto something. Furthermore, she believes the pages may contain directions to where the drugs could be recovered. But what about the second page? which appears to have been written more quickly. My wife gleaned that it appears to be a description of events regarding the loss of the drugs. Between her childhood code-writing and deciphering skills and sheer intuition, she feels that Ricky returned to St. Louis from Orlando with the drugs intact, and that he checked into a motel near the airport along the northern edge of the city instead of going home. This would seem to support his desire to keep his family out of whatever shadier business he may have been engaged in. As we already know, on the 22nd, he was having trouble breathing, as was prone to happen. But maybe it wasn't from cutting a lawn, as he'd reportedly told hospital personnel. Could he instead have been experiencing some anxiety before, say, an arranged meeting with someone very important? Regardless, feeling that he needed medical attention in the meantime, could Ricky have entrusted a third party to hold the package for him so that he could go to the hospital to treat his ailment without having to involve members of his family? Now, let's suppose that this is when he was admitted to Barnes' Jewish Hospital on the 22nd. When he was released on the 24th, his priority certainly would have been to retrieve the drugs he'd left in the care of someone else when he had checked out of the motel. Maybe he'd asked them to pick him up from the hospital, but they never came. And what if this third party had decided not to hand the package back over to Ricky, opting instead to make an opportunity for themselves? At some point on the 24th, perhaps having grown very concerned about this disturbing turn of events, we know he took a bus to go visit his aunt. During these last days leading up to his disappearance and death, loved ones who'd encountered Ricky all say he was behaving strangely, that he seemed scared. When Ricky went to the Forest Park Hospital the next day, based on his notes and unique spellings, my wife feels Ricky had requested from a nurse an amount of pseudoephedrine, more commonly known under the brand name pseudofed. Anyone suffering from sinus problems, Who's purchased this over the counter drug in recent years is aware that you're required to provide personal information at checkout. That's because it's a main ingredient in the manufacture of methamphetamines. Could Ricky have been scrambling at this point to replace the drugs he'd regretfully left in someone else's care? Could the letter combination of T R L E R refer to a trailer where he intended to cook the meth? in order to appease whomever was expecting a shipment that had been lost. But perhaps the biggest question is, why does the FBI continue to take such a keen interest in the case? Since when is the Justice Department so concerned about what would otherwise seem like an everyday drug-related murder in a big city? Although it wouldn't be public knowledge that the FBI was involved until 12 years after Ricky's murder, when they appealed for help from the public to decipher the pages found in his pocket, we now know that an FBI agent was present at the meeting between city and county law enforcement just six months after the crime. Was this agent only there as part of a case police were building against Knox? Doubtful. Although suspected of murder, Knox seemed to just be a low-level drug dealer in a housing project, not someone you'd expect to be at the center of a federal investigation. To determine why the FBI may have become involved, let's look at what the Bureau actually does. According to their own website, the FBI investigates terrorism, counterintelligence, cybercrimes, public corruption, civil rights violations, organized crime, white-collar crime, violent crimes, and weapons of mass destruction— when we take the leap to rule out terrorism, foreign intelligence services, cyber crimes, civil rights, white-collar crime, and WMDs, we're left with either public corruption, organized crime, or violent crime. The violent crimes the FBI investigates tend to be mass shootings, bank robberies, and serial murder, but street gangs can sometimes figure into their work. Likewise, organized crime involving murder for hire or drug trafficking can earn the FBI's attention. And what if the FBI was investing possible public corruption at the local level? In any case, could Ricky McCormick actually have been a confidential informant? Did his untimely death mean that he missed an important rendezvous with a contact within the Bureau? That would certainly explain why the FBI is so interested in what might otherwise seem like just another urban shooting death. Having served only a fraction of his sentence, is it possible Ricky McCormick agreed to assist law enforcement in exchange for early release from prison? It not only seems possible, but likely. Was he feeding the Justice Department information about Knox and or the Hamdallas? According to a report in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, What was described to have begun as low level drug trafficking resulted in federal indictments in 2016. Knox was among those charged. In the same report, St. Louis's then police chief, Sam Dotson, told the paper that some of those arrested were associates of a former police officer named Don McGee, who pleaded guilty in 2015 to providing a shotgun to a known drug dealer. The previous year, McGee was wounded in a shootout while off duty. He'd apparently been struck by gunfire from a passing vehicle by assailants who reportedly followed and ambushed him. McGee returned fire, killing one of the vehicle's occupants. And while McGee would have been too young to have been a police officer at the time of McCormick's murder, his alleged ties to the criminal organization suggests that such enterprises had probably infiltrated law enforcement before, or at least compromised individual officers willing to make an extra buck illegally. Could all this mean that the FBI suspects McCormick may have been murdered by a dirty cop who may have been aware that Ricky was an informant? That's something the FBI would indeed be very interested in. My wife and I have been pouring ourselves into the Ricky McCormick case for more than two months, but I know that at some point, Darren Marler and Weird Darkness will be expecting me to deliver this piece that I've promised. And while we haven't definitely solved the case, I feel we may have offered some important new avenues to be explored. And though this installment must now come to a close, I know my wife and I will continue to pry deeper into this mystery. If we don't eventually happen to completely unravel it ourselves, our hope is that some of our ideas will inspire others to solve the cipher in the corn and see that justice ultimately comes. Ricky McCormick deserves that, and so do his fatherless children, whom he undoubtedly loved very much. He wanted his children to be proud of him as any father would. While his options for employment were few, and he may have had little choice but to make a buck outside of the law from time to time, it's clearly not the life Ricky wanted for his children. This is why we like the possibility that he may have been seeking a sort of redemption by working with police. And we can't help but feel that Ricky cannot rest until his children know the truth. Solving this case would provide closure and perhaps prove that he wasn't just someone who met the end he deserved for having been involved with dangerous people. That's not who he was, and it's not how his children should have to remember him." If you have any information that could help solve the Ricky McCormick murder, you can contact the FBI. There is a direct link to the case and a postal address to write to in the show notes. And a huge thanks to Stuart Walline for writing this episode of Weird Darkness. You can find a link to Stuart's own podcast and Facebook profile in the show notes. Do you have a dark tale to tell? You can share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. Music in this episode is provided by Shadows Symphony. You can find them online at Facebook.com slash Shadows Symphony. And if you like news, politics, and laughs, be sure to check out my other podcast at DailyDoseOfWeirdNews.com. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. my biggest issue when it comes to losing weight is I have no discipline. None. If I get a craving for something, I can't help myself. I have to satisfy the craving. But I'm trying something new now. No food after 6 p.m. Easier said than done, right? Well, That's my junk food monster time. Your time for daily cravings might be different. Well, Fortunately, I found this CBD oral spray, and it has been a big help. At least to me. Whenever I get this unhealthy food craving in the evening, I can keep it at bay with a few sprays of this product under my tongue. It's a salted caramel taste, too, which kind of takes care of the uh, sweet tooth at the same time. So the craving to eat is gone, Uh, the sweet tooth is gone, calories, none. If you need a little help battling back the craving monsters yourself, well, you can find a direct link to this CTFO weight loss oral spray on the sponsors page at WeirdDarkness.com. Have you been dreaming of writing your own book? Have you already written one? How would you like to be a published author with Dorrance Publishing? They have been working with authors and publishing great books for nearly a 100 years and your book could be next. And they cover it all. They edit your text, design your book pages, create a great-looking cover for your book Plus, as one of their authors, you'll also benefit from a custom book promotion marketing campaign – making your book available everywhere people buy books – online like Amazon but also brick-and-mortar bookstores. Your only job is to write the book! Call Doran's Publishing toll-free at 800-847-1362. 800-847-1362 Even if you're only curious, it's still worth making this free call to get their free author's guide to becoming a published author. Call Doran's Publishing at 800-847-1362. Imagine someday I might be promoting your book in my podcast. 800-847-1362.